Esther 6.1, on that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable de uh, deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigfana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Sounds like Haman, right? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. And let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse... And he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of, Jewish, of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. All right, so if you've been in this series for the last several weeks, you, you enjoyed that chapter more than the person who's been just here tonight. This ties directly in where, where we left off last time, but it's, it's an amazing twist of fate. Esther's, the book of Esther, inspired of God, um, has the pulse and the DNA of the Lord all over it, even though God is never mentioned once by name. He's invisible, he's seemingly still to the human eye, and he's silent. He doesn't speak in the book of of Esther, but he sovereignly moves. He is seen to be at work in so many of the affairs that look like normal life and business as usual, but what we learn from the book of Esther, if we're really paying attention, is that God is behind the scenes and he is sovereignly overseeing everything that has taken place. Remember with me, there has been a decree signed unwittingly by King Xerxes or Ahasuerus, same guy, that all of the Jews throughout the entire empire will be destroyed. And Mordecai is the guy that came up with that decree. Mordecai hated the Jews because one Jew, excuse me, Haman is the guy that came up with that decree, forgive me. Y'all got to shout me down when I start preaching heresy, okay? 
Haman is the guy that came up with that decree, all because Mordecai, the Jew, would not bow down and honor Haman. And so Haman got so frustrated in his soul, he was so insecure, so weak, that although everybody in the city would pay him honor, he could not stand the fact that Mordecai refused to stand up when he walked through the city streets and refused to bow down when it was time to bow down. And so what does Mordecai, uh, excuse me, what does Haman do? Haman says, we're going to ask the king to sign a death sentence on Mordecai and all of his people. And they were just a few months away from that death decree being executed. Now, what Haman didn't know is the king's wife, Esther, was also a Jew. And Mordecai had gone to Esther and said, they're going to exterminate your people. God has brought you into the kingdom for a time such as this. You've got to use your influence to talk to the king so your people might be saved. And so Esther had called a fast, and during that fast, she had come up with a plan to prepare two meals for the king and for wicked Haman. And so we're in between those two meals, and at the end of the last time we were together, you'll remember that Mordecai was so infuriated, excuse me, Haman was so infuriated with Mordecai that he decided he was going to hang the man, and all during the night they had been building the gallows upon which Mordecai would be hung. And so it's a terrible situation. Matter of fact, it couldn't get any darker for the people of God. They were powerless. They could not defend themselves. The people in charge were not only oppressing them, but about to exterminate them. And there's nothing humanly possible that is going to reverse the situation. And literally, um, it was a hopeless, hopeless time for the people of God. Except there's one thing that they didn't know. The Lord wasn't panicking. The Lord wasn't wringing his hands. The Lord wasn't up there biting his uh, sovereign nails, wondering what he should do. It's the same way God is when it feels like your life is falling apart. When it feels like you don't have any hope. When it feels like there's not going to be any answers. God sits upon his throne in the heavens doing that which pleases him. And if you're in his son, he is working all things together for good on your behalf. And we've got to remember that. Here in the book of Esther, we get a little peek at what that might look like. And so let's go through these verses together this evening. And let's start in, in back in the, frankly, the king's bedroom and he can't sleep. And so we're going to see how God ordains and awakens. And we see in verse number one, I'm going to give you three points in these first couple of verses. Here's the first one. God remembers what others forget. The Bible says in verse number one of chapter six that on that night, the night before Mordecai was to be executed, on that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of the memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Okay, so if you'll remember all the way back in chapter 2, Mordecai had saved the king's life. Do you remember that? So there was going to be an assassination attempt and Mordecai had saved the king's life. And there's this little footnote in chapter 2 that says they wrote that down in the book of the Chronicles or the book of records. They wrote it down that a Jew named Mordecai saved the king's life, but nothing was ever done. And so here we are on the night before Mordecai is going to be executed by Haman. All Haman's got to do is get permission from the king when the sun rises the next day. And on that night, the king just happened to have a little royal insomnia. He could not fall asleep. 
And so out of all the things the king could do, I mean, we already know he likes to get liquored up. He could have gotten drunk. He could have had as much wine as he wanted. He could have done a hundred things in order to fall asleep. But he does something very odd. He calls for the book of records to be brought in by one of the servants, and he says, read them to me. Now, here's my guess. It's just a guess. The king probably thought, if they'll just read that in that monotonous tone over and over again, I will finally get me some sleep. And so they come in, and as they're going through the book, they're reading record after record historically of things that have been done in the kingdom. Now, just pause here for a moment. God knows that Mordecai is set to be executed in the morning. God knows that the king is the only person that can authorize that. God knows that Haman is coming at sunrise to get permission from the king to execute Mordecai. And God at the 11th hour, when there would be no other possibility, God moves the heart of the king, keeps him awake, and the king happens, just happens to call for the very record book. And we're going to find out in a second that he seizes upon one name in that book. So go with me into verse number two. God stirs up what others let settle. Verse 2, it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, who sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Okay, so he's reading down through the book, and here's the record. The date is given, the event is given, that a Jewish man named Mordecai saves the king by exposing a plot by two of the king's servants to kill the king. And all of a sudden, the king is no longer falling asleep and getting dulled to death. His, his ears perk up because he hears this name Mordecai, and he's like, well, wait a minute, somebody saved my life? You mean to tell me somebody in the kingdom foiled an assassination plot? And, and up to this point, the king was completely ignorant that this had ever happened. Now, it's amazing to me that nobody rewarded Mordecai. But let me tell you something. If Mordecai had gotten his reward in that day, none of what's about to happen could have happened. Now, I'm going to give you this. I'm going to give it to you in a second. But I, I want you to know something. Sometimes you don't get the reward. You don't get the recognition. You don't get the honor that, in the human perspective, might be due unto you. Sometimes they pass over you at work, and they give it to the other person that you know doesn't have the skills that you have. Or, or they let you go, and they hire somebody young, fresh out of college, because they can get that person to try to do your job for half the price that they've been paying you. And then you're the one who gets stuck in that place where you feel dishonored. This stuff happens all the time time we get passed over we get overlooked we we get forgotten we go unrewarded bonus time might come out at work and you don't get one that year or maybe it's in the family where you're just doing your very best and there's ne'er a thank you ne'er a mm, that tasted good or wow thank you for taking care of this or I mean listen if you've raised kids you know that they go through a season when when thank you they, they can't speak it in any language it's just not there and, and so sometimes we feel overlooked, we feel devalued, we feel forgotten, we can feel invisible sometimes. And Mordecai had been living that way for a few years. But interestingly enough, the sovereign God of heaven had not allowed the reward to come immediately because it needed to be deferred because God knew what he was going to do right here. So now the king has the information that of which he had long been ignorant he now knew that two of his own staff had tried to kill him, and this man named Mordecai had spoken out on his behalf and had spared the king's life. And so now look in verse number three. God chooses 
to honor whom others ignore. The Bible says that the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. That's very interesting. Uh, king Ahasuerus is, is really just a carnal guy. I mean, I think we got old enough ears in here. The only thing we really know that he likes is liquor and women. That's just the way he rolls. He likes liquor, women, power. But every now and then he displays this generous streak and he hears about this, this man in the kingdom that has done this great and noble deed and immediately the king's like, did we honor him? Did we do anything? Because in those record books, it not only would have said that, by the way, ancient Persian kings were, that part of their glory is in what they did for other people. And so every noble thing that the king ever did on behalf of the citizens would have been kept in that record book because that's part of how they glorified themselves in the ancient world. And when he heard about this deed, he's like, I don't remember this. Did we do anything? And his servants kind of shamefacedly said, yeah, we, we actually didn't do anything for him. And so what God is doing at this much later date is he's saying, I didn't forget what my servant Mordecai did. I withheld the reward then because it's going to be much more impactful now. And so watch this. The 11th hour, the last minute, when there was no hope, there's nothing that can be done, humanly speaking. God moves in, keeps the king awake, has the king call for the record book. In the record book, he finds the one name of the guy who's about to be executed in the morning, and that guy actually becomes a hero to the king. Y'all ain't with me yet, but you're going to get there. Matter of fact, let's just go a little further into the text, because I like this. Um... It's very plain spoken, but in verses 4 through 9, here's what we see. That God actually employs a sinner to accomplish his will. Now, I know that we're all sinners, but this is an unregenerate, very proud, very aggressive, very determined sinner named Haman. And God is going to say, yeah, I think I'll use him to accomplish my will for Mordecai. Isn't it awesome when God uses the devil to get God's work done? I mean, listen, some, some of us, and I'll get to the text here in a second, but, but some of us, we cringe sometimes when we see unjust, unworthy, even unholy people get exalted, get elevated, seemingly get blessed, and, and we're saying, what in the world is going on? Well, let me just encourage you, don't quit reading their story when you're halfway through the book. Because you got to wait till the end of everybody's story to find out how the scales balance. And it's been looking like Haman's been on the way up and on the way up and on the way up. But we're about to see this guy get thrust down by the hand of God. But on the way, God uses Haman to exalt Mordecai. So here we go. This is going to be good. So first of all, sovereign timing is on display. Again, I want you to see God as being in control of this situation. Because I want you to see God as being in control of every situation. And his ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So don't get offended by knowing that God's in control. And if you don't like that thought, let me just ask you, if God's not in control, well, then who is? He is sovereign. He is in control. Nothing sneaks up on the Lord. He never had to say, whoops, I didn't see that coming. God is in control. And so he's in control of this. And so the king said, who's in the court? Now, Haman had just entered 
the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about what? About having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So here again is another example of God's sovereign directing of everything that was going on. So just as the king was asking about how to honor Mordecai, the enemy of Mordecai, Haman, is walking to the court of the king. And interestingly, the king calls Haman in. And the reason why is because the king wants some advice how do I honor Mordecai? How am I going to make this right with Mordecai? Oh, there's my chief of staff. There's Haman who just happens to be showing up first thing in the morning. Haman, come in here. I've got something I'm going to ask you. I just love that, friends. Just amazing to me. Now listen, just go ahead and remove some words from your Christian vocabulary. Remove the word luck. Remove the word chance. And remove the word coincidence. Now, I'm not a legalist about this, but I'm going to tell you, when, when, when we, just need to, we just need to just recognize if God is sovereign, then luck has no place in the way we think about life. And so <laughs> Mordecai is not getting lucky. He's getting shepherded. Haman's not unlucky. Haman's about to come face to face with justice in the next 24 hours. And so we, we, we see this happening. So go down with me in, in verse number six, because here comes Haman flagrant pride fills the room there is probably no more disgusting verse in the book of esther than this one right here so haman came in and no good morning no hey haman how are you no no small talk but the king said to him what should be done to the man to whom the king delights to honor now look at the bible haman said to himself whom would the king delight to honor more than me isn't that appalling? You ever met anybody like that? Don't answer that. <laughs> True to character, Haman views the king's question about how to honor the man in whom the king delights. He sees that as an opportunity to bless himself. Haman seems to think that the whole you know, universe orbits around him, so he interprets the king's question as being like a veiled offer of, hey, Haman... How can I, the king, bless you? And so Haman thinks they're playing some kind of little nobility game here. And so Haman's kind of being coy with it. And the king, he thinks the king's being coy. The king's not being coy. The king wants some straight answers because he's ready to bless Mordecai. But Haman doesn't know that yet. And so Haman's sitting there thinking, oh, man, the king just kind of wrote me a blank check. He's got to be talking about me. So how would I like to bless myself and look with me down in verse 7, 8, and 9. Here comes his presumptuous words, and they're spoken with this glee. Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. And let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man in whom the king delights to honor. It's almost like he had that written down on an index card ready to pull out of his pocket. I mean, he had, he had probably thought long and hard about what would be his fantasy moment. 
Because we've known already about Haman that he loves the applause of people. He's got an orphan spirit. He's got nothing going on in the inside, so he has to live off of the applause, the approval, and the admiration of other people. That's why he was wrecked when one guy in the kingdom wouldn't honor him. That guy happened to be Mordecai. So what we don't really get here, because we're 21st century people living in the Western world, that this, this list of things to honor the man in whom the king delights, it is aggressive. This is what he's saying. He's saying, king, I think the man that you want to honor should be able to wear one of your royal robes. That would be an official kingly garment that would be worn in places like um, you know, state dinners and any kind of royal. It would be a robe of the highest magnitude that if anybody saw it, they would, like, they would say there's only one person that can wear that robe. That's the king. And then he says, and bring out the royal steed. Bring your horse. Wrap up the fella in your robe. Put him on your horse. And by the way, king, while we're at it, I think the man that you delight to honor in should be able to wear one of your crowns. I mean, that's like perilously close to getting your head chopped off by the king because basically he's saying, set this guy up for a day to look like he's the king. And then I love this part. The, the story wouldn't be as good if, if Haman hadn't said this. And let one of your servants, let one of your noble servants, one of your higher ups, let him lead that man through the city proclaiming, this is the man that the king delights to honor. Now remember when he's saying that, he's picturing himself. He's picturing him in the king's robe, him on the king's horse, all the people looking at Haman saying, oh, look at Haman, look at Haman, and being led around the city proclaiming that this man has the delight of the king. It's a little disgusting. I mean, it's just so overtly arrogant and presumptuous. But that's the way pride operates. Now, I don't know, man. I, I don't think I've ever encountered anybody quite like this. But my guess is they're out there somewhere. Um, these would be unregenerate people. These would be people devoid of the Spirit of God. These would be people that are so consumed with their own aura that they just can't escape their own glory. And they think they're so glorious that everybody else needs to be a partaker of their glory. And so their lives are all about them. And so Haman is this guy. Now, this is awesome what's about to happen. Because Haman's just getting filled with all sorts of Hamanisms. I mean, he is just like, oh, this is awesome. He, he literally thinks he's setting up, you know, his grand moment in life. <laughs> he is about to get thrust down. He's about to get shot blocked like Dikembe Mutombo on Spud Webb. I mean, this is for you guys that were born after the 80s. So you may not get that, but that's a pop culture reference to the Atlanta Hawks many years ago. Okay, so here comes, here comes Haman. And here comes the king. And watch God crush an ego. This is so good. So verse number 10, Haman's piercing humiliation. So Haman's just delivered this awesome description of what needs to happen. And the king says to Haman, hurry up. Take the robes. Haman's like, yeah. Take the horse. Haman's like, come on. And as you have said, do exactly those things to Mordecai the Jew. 
Mordecai, 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 Mordecai. It would have haunted him. It would have been like the worst. This is Haman's enemy. You know why Haman was in the court of the king that morning. He needed to get the death sentence, execution sentence, signed off by the king so he could kill Mordecai on the gallows that they spent all night building. So he's in there to get the death warrant signed on Mordecai, and he, by his own mouth, just constructed the greatest honor that Mordecai could ever receive. And he did it all thinking he was honoring himself. This is awesome. Friends, it doesn't always work like this, but forgive me if I just live vicariously through this moment and let all of that, maybe it's, maybe it's not holy, but it is what's going on in my heart right now, to see the Lord do that to your enemy when you've operated. Mordecai had operated in integrity. Mordecai was seeking the Lord. Mordecai is a picture of honor. Mordecai refused to bow down to, to Haman. He wanted to honor the Lord and not bow down to any man. Mordecai had paid the price. Mordecai had been rejected. Mordecai had been forgotten. Mordecai had been the object of Haman's hatred. And Mordecai, though he didn't know it, was just hours away from being executed by Haman, except God moved in the 11th hour. God dealt with the king's heart. God had the right name at the right scroll when the books were read that night. And God <laughs> used a sinner like Mordecai, excuse me, Haman, to create the very platform on which God would honor Mordecai. Um, if, if there's irony anywhere in the scripture, it's right here. I don't know how you would score yourself and how you respond to your opposition. But man, if we can ever get to the level of trust and obedience and integrity that Mordecai got to, we might see more of this in our lives. Haman was just being Haman. And Haman crossed an unseen line with Yahweh. And when that happened... The father said, that's enough. And friends, you don't know where that line is with people that oppose you. And I'm going to say something, I'm going to say it softly, but it's, it's got a little edge to it. You're not qualified to draw the line in the sand and say when they cross that judgment hits. You're not qualified, nor am I. Um, the thing, and Billy touched on this Sunday in his message, and I was so grateful to, to hear it. One of the things that should motivate you to mercy is the realization of how much mercy you actually need. Because we, we don't feel like we need as much mercy as we do. Because we're nicer than our opponents. So anytime we want to feel good about ourselves, we find the person that we like the least, respect the least, the person that is about as far away from God as possible, and we say, well, I'm not like that person. But the problem is, is their offense against you is not as bad as your offense against God. And so God pours down mercy on us, and yet we, we, we kind of contain it like a bowl. We get that mercy, and we just hold it for ourselves. We're like, yeah, hallelujah, I've got mercy. Thank you, Lord. But God wants to pour more, more mercy not just on you, but through you. He wants you to be a conduit, a pipe. 
And when part of us being merciful to our opposition is letting God handle what needs to be handled. You know, I, I jokingly said earlier about having a, a face uh, on your dartboard. Um, I want you to know people do that. <laughs> P- people will find creative ways just to kind of rehearse in their minds how to get even. Um, I, you know, one of the things you can't avoid in ministry is, is opposition. And I'm in a great season right now, so I can preach this. I don't have anybody in mind. All my Hamans are gone, amen. They, they, they took off a long time ago. But there were seasons where every time I walked in the building and I'd see that face, I, I would feel the call of God to be compassionate, merciful, but my flesh didn't want to cooperate. Now, I'm confessing my sins to you, so just you know, be merciful unto me. But I, I would see a face, and you know how you do it, right? You smile. Hey, good morning, brother. I'd like to kill you. Good morning, sister. You make me sick. Good morning. Good to see you here today. You ready to worship the Lord? God's like, I'm not receiving your worship with an attitude like that. Yeah, I'm just getting too real for y'all. Y'all are just like, we never do stuff like that. You better repent. Sure we do. It may not be in the church house, but it might be in the family. Might be at work. It, it, It might be in the community or with a neighbor. And we, we can put on the face, but man, sometimes there's like war in our heart. Mordecai just seemed to kind of walk on those waves. He didn't seem to sink. And so, <laughs> I don't know, man. Sometimes I think when we get to heaven, God will like have this big 4K ultra video screen. And I'm going to say, Lord, can you rewind and play Esther 6 so I can see Haman's face when the king said, do that unto Mordecai? I want to see that, man. The blood probably drained out of his face because all of a sudden he's realizing that he just blessed the one he wanted to kill. It was an inadvertent blessing from the mouth of Haman and... um, It's all downhill for for this guy from here. So look at the ironic assignment that Haman gets in verse number 11. So Haman took the robes and the horse, because you can't argue with the king. I mean, Haman didn't even give a rebuttal. And notice this. He dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city. So now let's just, I want you to think through this. So Mordecai hears that he gets commanded by the king that he's going to be the servant that leads Mordecai on the king's horse in the king's robe wearing the king's crown through the city. So Mordecai's got to go to the barn. He's got to bring the stallion out. He's got to go and find Mordecai in the king's gate. He was going to kill Mordecai. And he said, Mordecai, um, King Ahasuerus would like to honor you, and so it is my privilege today to uh, fit you with his robe. And he wraps the robe around Mordecai. Y'all aren't feeling this. That's okay. I'm going to feel it for you. He wraps the robe around Mordecai and he puts a crown on Mordecai's head. And then he helps Mordecai get on the steed and, and, and then he takes the uh, whatever that leash, whatever you call it. I don't know what it's called. I, I was raised in the suburbs. I, I don't do horses. So he takes the thing And he leads Mordecai. Now listen, their animosity towards each other would have been known in the king's gate. 
Everybody knows that Mordecai is not, he's the guy who won't bow down to Haman. Everybody knows Haman hates Mordecai. There might have even been word that Mordecai was going to die the next day. And the next thing that people see is Mordecai on the horse being led around by Haman. And the Bible says that Haman had to proclaim. So look, look with me, look down in verse number 11 at the end of it. Here's his painful testimony. Here's Haman's testimony. It's a testimony service. And, and Haman's testimony is, Thus shall it be done to the man in whom the king delights to honor. And he couldn't half-step it. But he had to do it the way he's supposed to do it. And even in the Hebrew language, when it talks about, it uses that word translated here, proclaim, it is to cry out loudly. So he couldn't fake it. He had to go around enthusiastically pointing all of the honor. Remember, he's giving to Mordecai the thing that he himself craves honor and applause and affirmation and everybody's watching this thing happen i don't know man have y'all never had like a bad guy coming after you because y'all are looking at it this thing like yeah so what have you never had anybody gunning for you well if you haven't you're not getting this but for the nine of us that have we're like jeff go re-preach that point again man tell us again it's just awesome that god is so creative even employing irony and humor even to take this situation from mordecai's death to mordecai's exaltation from haman's exaltation to haman's eventual death and mordecai didn't have to do a thing mordecai had no blood on his hands he didn't even get his fingernails dirty on this thing all he did was honor god wait on god and in god's timing at the very last moment, God says, let me take care of this. Just an awesome thing to remember. Listen, you have the ability to get even, but I'm going to tell you, you never really get even. What is that old proverb that says, he who slingeth mud only loses ground? It's, it's the idea that when we are trashing our opposition as if we're doing something that God can bless. When he said, didn't I tell you vengeance is mine, I will repay? And there's something in our heart, and by the way, we never really want to get even. We want to get even plus a little. That's just the way it works. You slap me in my cheek, I'm going to bust you in your teeth. That's just the way we are. I'm not saying that literally, but that's the way we respond. You use three, four-letter words in describing me, I'm going to use four describing you. That's the carnal, fleshly way. And, and so we never really want to get even. We want to get over. And what God says is, no, that's actually not a place where you can move in a way that honors me. And you're not being like me when you do that. So I'm just going to cut that off from you. Isn't it amazing? God doesn't say partner with me in vengeance. Let's do it together. God says, I want you to leave it with me. Because, man, we put our hands on it and it's, it's tainted. It's spoiled. It's ruined. It ends up being more work for the Lord to do. But if we can abide in the love of Jesus Christ, and literally, people want to talk all the time about being spirit-filled, and they think, well, I pray in tongues, so I'm spirit-filled. Yeah, but you're mean as a snake. You act like, you know, you, know, you fly. Don't, don't talk to me about praying in tongues and all of that stuff and let that be your sum total of what it means to be full of the Spirit. To be full of the Spirit is to live like Jesus. And so we, we, we're actually cordoned off from this thing called vengeance. 
and this, this account reminds us that if we really will leave it with God, he's going to take care of it. He's a just God. The problem is, is sometimes there's something within us that wants them to do it immediately. And, and here's what broke me of that. I, I can't remember what year it was. It was in the last 10 years, and I was going through a, a very difficult time with a couple of different guys in the church, and they're not here anymore. They're gone, and God bless them. I don't have any animosity in my heart against them, but at that time I was really struggling with these guys. And um, I, I wanted the Lord to do something to vindicate me and show them that they were wrong. It, it was a vindication that I wanted. And I just said, Lord, you've got to do something, and you've got to do it now because they keep doing this stuff, and you've just got to stop them now. And I remember the Holy Spirit just speaking to me and saying, if, if, if I go and treat them that way in their sin, you have to ask me to treat you that way in your sin. And I realized that what I was asking him to do was to use a harsher level of response with them than I would, would think was fitting for me. In other words, treat them harsher than you would ever treat me. And it was in that season that I realized, man, I'm just, I've got a corrupt inner justice system. I'm always wanting to defend me, and I'm always wanting to slay my opposition, and that's not Jesus. That's not the Lord. And so it was through times like that that I realized, man, I thought I was sanctified, and I'm not. I'm not finished. I'm being sanctified. And I literally had to, not literally, but I had to lay down my sword and I had to ask God, I quit asking God to judge my opposition and my opponents. And by the way, those guys got worse on me. They got worse. Let, let me tell you, I'm, I've already blown this outline, so let me just tell you. You know what happened? My wife saw me just kind of breaking under the weight of these guys. And she just looked at me over a period of probably about six months and maybe a dozen times. She was like, Jeff, you don't have to worry about them. I'm like, Baby, they're there. They're causing troubles. This is there. She goes, oh, no, no, no. I'm going to pray and keep praying, and they'll be gone soon. They'll be gone soon. And I'm like, what? She's like, oh, yeah, I got this. The Father loves me. He's not going to let me be miserable with you walking around the house like this for another year. So it's going to be taken care of. And do you know what? It was as if the way I pictured it is the Lord just said, okay, Amy, I'm not really listening to what Jeff's saying right now, but I am listening to you, and you're, you're spot on. So let me take care. And God just went, ding, ding, ding. Those three guys were gone. They were gone, and it all happened like within a month, and all of a sudden I was like, ah, ah. but it didn't come because I was some stout-hearted, you know, emblematic of Jesus kind of Christian. It came because I had to go through my, my flesh, man. I had to just come to terms with the fact that I'm not like Jesus when it comes to my enemies. And meanwhile, I learned how to do it from, from my wife, who was just so fixated on the father that she wasn't worried about the opposition. And so we get down to the end of this, and I've, I've got to finish here. Um, just go down to verses 12 through 14. They'll be up on the screen. So watch God move in authority. So back to, to Mordecai and Haman. So God moves in authority in a couple of different ways. First of all, in promotion and demotion. Then Mordecai returned to the king, king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house 
mourning and with his head covered. The guy who wanted everybody to see him at the end of his humbling doesn't want anybody to see him because he has now had his, his, his idol, his stronghold, has been toppled in his life. But he doesn't respond in repentance. He still responds in pride because that's the nature of who Haman is. So Mordecai, what I love about this, did you see what all Mordecai said during this time? Nothing. Mordecai didn't rub it in the face of Haman. Mordecai didn't say, that's right, that's right. I got God on my side. Who you got, Haman? You ain't got nothing. He didn't say any of that. Mordecai just, and and it's very interesting, Mordecai went right back to where he came from in humility. He didn't get puffed up. He didn't strut. He didn't, you know, call the, the newspaper in Susa and say, hey, print a report on this. Put my page, my picture on the front page. He just went right back to the spot where God had last had him. So he's, again, the picture of humility. But Haman goes to his house with his face covered, with his tail between his legs. His his proud dreams have just been devastated. His name is Mud. The thing that he craved got taken from him. So down in verse number 13, we see God's not only sovereign and in authority and promoting uh, Mordecai and demoting Haman, but God is also moving in authority through friends and foes. Look in verse 13. So Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. So he went home, he's still talking about himself. He's still the center of the story. And then his wise men and his wife Zeresh, who the day before had been in his amen corner, they all had sweatshirts with his name on it, man. They're in, they're in painting their face. We're on Haman's team. And now this is their anthem, <laughs> his wife. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. <laughs> she, that's a truth bomb right there. So his, his wife said, let me paraphrase it. She said, oh, that happened today? The king exalted Mordecai? And you had to lead him around the city? And you had to proclaim his, 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 the king's delight on Mordecai? Oh, Haman, baby, you are toast. That's me paraphrasing. That's what she's saying to him. And so all of a sudden, these people that loved him when he had a lot to offer are now like packing their bags and they're getting out. They do not want to be hanging out. And so we get down to verse number 14. You got to remember, there's still the lunch that he's supposed to go to. Remember that. Remember Esther. Remember the fact that the people are still under the decree of death. Mor- uh, Mordecai and Haman have have had God move one for him and one against him, um, but but there's still that decree of death. So Esther's still got work to do. And so the Bible says, in these twists and turns, God moves in authority. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived. And they hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Listen, this, I just about for a moment there, I had a little flicker of compassion for Haman. He is having a terrible day. His whole world just got crushed. And now he's got to go back to the palace to have dinner, a feast, with the king and his wife. We're going to leave the story there, and let me close right here with just a couple of thoughts. You are so much better off when you wait on God to promote you. There's nothing wrong with promotion. 
There's something very wrong with living to be promoted in the eyes of people. It's, it's a bad, bad case of the heart when that drives you. There's nothing wrong with doing admirable things with your life. But there's something really wrong with doing things so that people will admire you in life. It's all about your motivation. Um, you're going to come up against some opposition, and it's going to hurt. You don't get a free pass on people hurting you. Sometimes it's, it's right, people right up close to you, people that you have poured into, people that you have served or honored or loved. And um, they're going to occasionally do things to intentionally hurt you. And there is the potential, I'm not going to project this on anybody, but there is the potential that you might want to take matters into your own hand. You might want to use your words like a switchblade to cut them up. You might want to see them hurt. You might want to um, watch them experience a level of pain that you've been operating at plus a little. That's in all of our hearts. Listen, I'm, I'm not going to pretend that that doesn't lurk somewhere. Um, oh, who was it? There was a prophetic word given over one of the sons of uh, uh, Jacob. Uh, sin crouches at the door. It's a very, it's a King James phrase, but it's always stuck with me. It's, yeah, is that what it was? Yeah, it was Cain and Abel. That's what it was. Thank you. Yay. Audience participation. Thank you. Appreciate that. Nick. Sin crouches at the door. And that's our hearts, man. So listen, you can be saved, you can be spirit-filled, you can be in the Word, but that doesn't mean you're, you're completely immune from this kind of situation. So you've got to master your heart. If sin is crouching at the door, then bolt the door. Don't crack it. Don't flirt with it. Bolt the door. I, I, I want you to apply this now, at whatever level you need to. Because, again, and it really just ties into what, what Joy kind of spoke prophetically over the beginning of the service. Um, a seed of bitterness never stays a seed. It branches. It blossoms and branches. And many thereby are defiled. And so what do we do? When we recognize the seed is in there, we do whatever it takes to cooperate with the Lord in order for that seed to be plucked out so it never has a chance to grow. Um, the reality is, is that we are not guaranteed that our enemies will be dealt with before our eyes in this life. God does promise to balance the scales, but they're not always balanced in this life, and they're, they're rarely balanced instantly. Um, if you'll remember with me, Jesus Christ came to earth, loved the people, served the people, healed the people, imparted truth to the people, raised some people from the dead, healed some people, and constantly magnified the grace and the mercy and compassion of God to the people, and the people nailed him to a cross. And that was 2,000 years ago, and his name has still not been vindicated. I want you to think about that with me. Jesus Christ has been waiting 2,000 years. They still hate him. The world still hates him. They still 
want to do anything just to tear at that holy name. They don't even know why. He's been waiting 2,000 years for the Father to fully vindicate him. And he's the one that lives in you. So if he can wait, you can wait. And in your waiting and in your releasing, you bring such pleasure to the Father's heart because he knows how hard it is. He knows that's hard for us. But when we honor him and we say, Lord, I'm not fit to deal with my opposition in a holy way, Jesus, help me to obey the commands that you gave concerning my enemies, and they're twofold. Love your enemies and pray for them. That will keep you busy the rest of your life working on that. And if we will press into that, that's all the attention we need to give to our enemies. Justice belongs to the Lord. And there is coming a day when every scale will be balanced. And so we wait in faith for that day. And meanwhile, we choose to pour our energies not into waiting on vengeance for our enemies, but we put our energy into praying for them and asking God to reshape our hearts so that in some capacity we can love them to the degree that we are empowered by God. That is the call of God on our lives. That's what I believe Mordecai was able to do in a situation with Haman, and it invited the movement of God on his behalf. 